around a place. I, I, I go to CES and I'm talking to people about it, and I'm you know, and everyone's like, Miles, shut up about this Bitcoin, would you? Oh We're my sick, god, you know. that was that was, a, that was everyone to me. I was saying Bitcoin's the next big thing. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna overtake the dollar. It's gonna become the new currency. Everyone's just laughing at me, and I'm like, okay, yeah, exactly. You're lost. You're exactly. Lost. And we are back oh man it feels good to be back like this podcasting thing has been in the background in my life for like the past couple months but that's there's honestly not one day where i don't go about thinking about it and how much i miss it because just the people that you talk to it's just so fun but i'm happy to say that we are back um some of the stuff that i wanted to get implemented into the show um, are still a work in progress, but there are still some new segments that I want to implement that I want to implement now. So without further ado, let's welcome back to another little season, I want to say, of The More You Know. And 2022 is upon us, and what greater way to start the year off with one more education and two, some finance talk, because I think after 2021 and like how we are seeing the economy and how things are going right now, I think some money talk would be very good for everyone to either get yourself back on track or just to kind of plan ahead for the future. So what better person to ask than someone who built several businesses and achieved their way to financial independence? Um, I'm joined with Miles. Miles, can you give a brief intro of of yourself? Sure. Um, hey, Brian, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm a uh, Australian expat who has lived in the United States for 20-something years, and I came here with nothing but a bag of clothes, and I've been a millionaire multiple times. Um, and I do things in a very unusual and atypical way that does not follow most American social mantras. So I'm kind of what they call a contrarian but um, the end results worked out pretty well for me. So I'm happy to share any of those stories with you, with your listeners. Definitely. And, and yeah, I think, I think that's a very good thing to kind of mention too, is that like in life, there's not like one way to do things. Like I know that a lot of the uh, common things that you see in America is that like um, the standard norms of how you do stuff, like, for example, retirement. People say, "All right, you graduate college, get a job, contribute to your to your four hundred and one k whenever you can, and just make sure that you match the match, and then you retire at sixty five. And uh, I know that this generation is not a big not a big fan of that, so it's good to to uh, see multiple uh, perspectives of life and how people and how people do things. Yeah. Well, they changed a lot. I mean, th that whole idea of working uh, until you're 65 and then retiring, originally the, the idea was that the company you worked for, you'd give you some sort of a pension and you'd live on that until the day you die. That was a post-World War II thing. That's a very 20th century mentality. And it sort of stopped working sometime around about the mid-70s. Um, and that and a lot of that may be due to getting off the gold standard or whatever economic reason there was. But I think that the truth is that people realized that working for the same company for all of their lives was not something they wanted to do. 
and they wanted to have different experiences, maybe have multiple careers, maybe live in different places. The technology changed. I mean, if, if, if you were going back to those days, that was a time when it would have cost you a small fortune to fly from New York to London. I mean, it was, this was not a world where we were as mobile and had as many options as we have today. So when you fast forward it into today's world, it doesn't fit. And I think that because I came to the United States without that uh, mentality, I could see the disconnect and I could celebrate the disconnect of that and just do the polar opposite of what everyone else has done. And I got much, much better results than they got. And that's not to say that other people were doing wrong things or that I was doing the right thing. It's just that I guess the easy way of thinking about it is if you follow the herd and what everybody else does en masse, you will get a small piece of the benefits that the herd gets. But if you go the opposite direction of everybody else, you could get nothing or you could get 100% of the big windfall. And it's a question of how much risk reward you're willing to tolerate. But they don't they don't tell you that. You the problem is your parents, if they were sitting around at the kitchen table trying to and you said, I don't know what I want to do, but I've gone graduating high school and I've got no idea where I want to go, they can't tell you that. And in their minds and in their hearts, I'll guarantee I know this because I've raised a daughter through this whole experience. You know deep down inside of you that you're looking at somebody here who has a good chance of a clean start. And yet the parents will always veer towards a conservative, safe place because that's for the last, I don't know, 18 years, that was the haven they raised their child in. They wanted safety. They wanted, it was all about providing and nurturing and all that. So that the second that the 18 year old's ready to leave the nest, they don't know the answer. And the truth is, in my opinion, that they need to empower somebody to leave the nest and tell them with their blessing, go into the world and find yourself. Travel around, backpack for a couple of years in Nepal, do whatever the hell you want to do, and you'll discover who you are and bring that back and then we can have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. I definitely I definitely do agree with that. Um, but from like a parenting perspective, like not that I'm a parent, but just like looking at the parent side of it, I kind of do see like why they want to keep things safe and all, but the risk and reward factor of just letting like your child go out into the world and just try out different things, like different careers is, I think is a, is a wonderful thing. Um, I was fortunate enough to kind of realize at kind of like a young age of like what I like to do on the side as a, as a little hobby. Mm -hmm. And I, and for me, I wanted to kind of take that and kind of put it into like a platform or some type of monetization type of thing. So I can have my little side, my little side hustle there. And I can actually have like the, your typical uh, American career life. Yeah, well, I, that's fine, and that works in a in a capital capitalistic country. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's nothing wrong with that because I'm a I'm a capitalist, so I get along with that really well. Um, but when you start to travel and you start to see 
every place on this planet. You visit a dozen different countries. You you live in Argentina. You you know you do that. You come back with this different perspective on life because you've you've lived with people who maybe um, I don't know they might be villagers in the Amazon or they could be sub-Saharan nomads or they could be you know a bunch of really smart guys in Finland doing some stem project I don't know you you just find different people from different backgrounds and all of a sudden you look at yourself and you go oh I never thought about life like that. I never thought about that. That's really interesting. You're challenging my perception of who I am. And at that age, you're defining who you are. You're building that uh, that ideology of you. And it's important to have inputs from so many vast different areas because then it will uncover what your passion is. It will uncover what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And and they don't teach you this stuff. You know, you can't read it in a book. You can't watch somebody's YouTube video and learn it. You won't see it on somebody's Instagram. It's going to be you out there in a place that doesn't speak your language, that has bad weather, and you're living in some crappy place somewhere and backpacking. That's when you find yourself. Yeah, I definitely do agree with that. Time alone and just get with yourself and just experiencing different things is the best way to kind of really find out who you are, what you like and what you dislike. But speaking from your perspective, what was that one moment where you kind of kind of just had that light bulb moment where you kind of were just like, this is what I like. This is, this is what I want to do. And just kind of that aha moment of like, where you found out like who you really are and like, what you wanted to do yeah it's a very interesting question because it would i wish there was a simple answer to it but what happened for me was that when i was in my teenage years i discovered electronics and technology and at that time we're talking pre-computers here we're talking like cb radios and soldering irons and learning what resistors were and all all that sort of crap you know it's like really really down in the weeds but i learned that stuff and i was fascinated that that what these things could do. And then when the first personal computer came out, I took all of the paper route money I'd saved up and I bought one and I spent all my time in my bedroom learning how to program it. This was in 1978. And so what happened was uh, I was about 14, 15 years old, I think at the time. And um, I was pretty good at it. And I started writing programs that people could I could put on a cassette tape. That's how you did it back then. And uh, you'd, you'd give it to somebody and they'd load it in their computer and, they, you know, and they're like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. So um, I started realizing that I could sell these things. And so I remember I went to my father and I said to him, because he was spending this ridiculous amount of money sending me to this private, you know, kind of um, Hogwarts-looking school, <laughs> you know, a suit and tie kind of, you know, high school. And I said, why are you doing that? You don't need to be spending this sort of money because you think I need to get an education. I think I know what I want to do. I want to do this computer thing. And I think that if I don't seize the moment right now, and take what I can do before everybody else learns how to do this stuff, I'm going to miss an opportunity that could be worth, you know, that is a life-changing opportunity. And for some reason, he he said, okay. 
So I, I left high school. I didn't even finish high school. And I went straight out and I created a software company. Oh, wow. Yeah, at that age, which is crazy. But by the time I was 24, I had written software for every government department in South Australia, a defense contractor making $5 billion submarines. Um, I ran uh, large-scale transport companies all over Australia, wrote the software that did all the shipping and stuff like that, forensic science labs. I even wrote the software for the university that my parents wanted me to go to that I never went to. I wrote their software for their cryogenic freezer storage lab management. I mean, it was That's crazy. Yeah, and, and I didn't even finish high school, right? But I wasn't going to tell anybody. It's just that I said, I've gotten this inquiring mind and I found something I could sink my teeth into and I did. And that's how I got to the United States. I ended up getting, well, I, it was a long story. I got married and I ended up moving to California. But um, the people that I hooked up with when I got here were all of the people who were consultants working for defense contractors that I used to write software for. So they knew me, but everybody else had no idea who I, who I was. And I came in as this kid with no education, with no degree, with nothing and tried to get a job. And man, I tell you, if you ever tried that, that's pushing it uphill, I'll tell you right there. That's, <laughs> that is impossible in this place. If you deal with HR departments and they don't take anybody who doesn't have at least a high school diploma, let alone a bachelor's in something, and you're looking at them going, I could, I could completely transform your corporation right now with what I've done for other people, and you want to say no to me, right? But this happened 20 times over until eventually I fell into a startup. Who, who took me on but and then that's a whole other story <laughs> and then after you got kind of got like that well first before we go into that what would you really define as success like when you were that young starting your own company and doing so many big projects for so many big firms how did you calculate success for yourself was it monetary was it internal feeling no it was not monetary um it was timing and i i think it's uh what do they say it's the secret to great comedy um timing is everything i'll tell you how i learned that when you're in, in australia there's not that, well, when I grew up there, there weren't that many people in Australia. You had very few cities and a large amount of land and everyone lived on the ocean, on the coastline. And I was no different. And one of the pastimes that you learn, well, I learned, was how to surf. And so we would, me and my mates would go out on the weekend and we'd go out to these surf beaches and we'd learn how to surf. And it was the most educational experience I've ever had in my life. I didn't need to go to college when I learned how to surf. I'll explain why. If you're out in the ocean and you're on a board, there's the first thing you learn is that you can't ride a wave unless you're willing to get wet. So you've got to get off the beach and you've got to get your butt into the water. So that's number one, right? Number two is when you're out there, you've got to realize that you don't know squat and that you don't know how the, how the universe works and how waves work and it, you're going to get yourself beaten up and that surfboard's going to hit you in the back of the head when you get dumped on the wave that you're trying to catch. And you start realizing after a day or so of doing this that you're a total loser, <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't do squat right but if you're persistent and you know a few more days of this you start 
getting it. And what you start understanding is that in nature, there are cycles. And in the case of surfing, it's very easy because it's a visual, visual thing we can all relate to. The waves are cycles. The waves come in in sets and they follow these patterns. They crest at a certain point and they die off at a certain point. And you've got to get in front of the wave. So the way you catch a wave is that you've got to paddle and be ahead of it with some sort of forward momentum. And then it will come from behind and scoop you up and give you everything you want. The, the energy of the universe is just given to you right there and then. And what you do with it, well, that comes down to how well you can ride the board, but it really is how prepared you are. And after doing that and spending days and days and days out there in the ocean, dealing with nature and dealing with the waves and watching these patterns, I got it. I said, you know, here's the answer. You, you, you catch the wave before it's upon you. It's all about positioning. It's all about preparation. It's all about timing. And if you're willing to punt on the one you see coming out on the horizon and turn away and paddle like crazy, if you pick the right one and you are at the right time, it'll scoop you up and it will deliver to you the bounty of the universe right there. Surfers know this. They know this spiritually. They know this instinctively. So do stock market traders. So do people who buy crypto successfully. They know <laughs> that the waves of a chart are no light, not anything different to the waves of the ocean. You're never, ever going to catch anything if you try and paddle when it's upon you or when it's past you. And in the case of surfing, if you try to paddle when things upon you, you will get dumped and it will hurt. And that's why you take that mentality into investing and that's how you make millions of dollars. That's how I did it. Now, I was able to sanity check that theory at a very young age. You asked me before about when I thought like success, what did that mean? What that meant for me was my ability to take that theory and to apply it in the world of technology over the course of a number of years. And that was that I need to know the technology before the wave comes upon me. Exactly. I'm right? just going to say right there. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I so definitely I, agree with you on that, but please. No, please no. I was, was, was going to say that it, it it's a punt. But it comes down to gut feeling and it comes down to active participation in whatever you're doing, whether it be a real estate investment or whether you are you want to work in Wall Street or you want to be a software developer or you want to – whatever you want to do. You, it's a punt. And the thing is that this is what the, the poor 18-year-old kid at the kitchen table with the student loan contract being put in front of them to go to whatever college that they think they can go to. They haven't learned that lesson yet. So they're going to invest $100,000 of their future income or, or more on a punt they have never tested, that they don't know where they're positioned on, that they're looking at where the future might be, like the wave, and they're saying, well, maybe, you know, in three or four years, maybe, um, I don't know, fusion energy is a thing. Maybe I should try to go to MIT, you know, and maybe that's what they want to do. Or that would be a, a smart move in terms of future punting. But if they look at it and they go, oh, I think I want to be a coder and work at Google, you know that ship sailed like five years ago? 
That's you tr- you trying to catch the wave after it's passed you. Good luck having a ride on that one. Very no, true. Right. So this is parents don't tell their kids this, right? They they might in, in, um, intrinsically say, uh, "I think that in the future this might happen," but they could be wrong. And it's not really for them to lay that roadwork out for the for the for their kid. It's for the kid to go out into the world and learn how the world works. And like my uh, epiphany, which came from being a surfer, other people might have a similar experience when they're trying to climb Kilimanjaro. I don't know, but you're not mm. going to find it unless you go out to it. <laughs> and yeah. that, and that's kind of where I think the parents need to start. And I think it's where we all need to start. We need to start our adventure and be openly willing to see everything about us and not filter it. And, it, and it's hard, but take it all in and then spend some time at the end of the day thinking, what did I see today? What did I observe? Because we are just another species on this planet. We're nothing special. This planet will be around far longer than we will be. And if we don't realize that we take from it the bounty it offers us, then we're going to miss the point. And it's out there. It just needs the right set of eyes to, to tune in like a, a frequency that you tune in on it. It's out there, but you're not going to find it unless you go to it. This is definitely something that I want to do more in 2022. And I feel like a lot of people should do in 2022. And that's just being more aware when you're outside or when you're going on adventures and just spending less time on your phone and more time observing observing nature observing people around you just observing and spending more time in the now because when i feel like the more time that you spend in the now the more that you really learn about yourself absolutely and and the one thing that you know if you if you look at things like um i mean i know it's a it's a salient topic right now because we're coming through a pandemic but if you look at the way that people's immunities work you don't build up immunities by not exposing yourself to viruses, right? Like if you don't, it's like I, I spend a lot of time in Mexico. I have some property in Mexico. So um, whenever I go down there and we take friends with us, nine times out of 10, they all get Montezuma's revenge, right? They all get some they drink the water and then they're on the toilet for the next three days. I mean, that's, that's Mexico. If you've been down there a lot or you live down there, that doesn't happen to you because yeah. what will happen is you build an immunity to it because you've had those couple of bad experiences already and you typically, you change your behavior and you build some immunity to that. But you have to expose yourself to it. And it ain't nice. I mean, it's it's a nasty experience. But once you've done that, you're stronger, right? It's what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And therefore, you need to be willing to take a hit. Um, it's like boxing, right? You can't be a boxer unless you know how to receive a punch. In the same way that um, a martial arts fighter has to – the first thing they learn is how to fall, it's the same thing, you know, and we, we don't, as individuals, we're weak. We don't strengthen ourselves around the concept of taking a hit and then looking at how we react to that, what we've learned from that, and how stronger we've become because we did it. 
definitely. I want to just kind of circle back on like the topic of kind of like getting ahead of things. If there's one thing that I really learned in my life is that learning more about something or just knowing stuff in general, knowledge is li- is literally power. Talking from it from like my perspective of like what I've learned is because I caught on to the Bitcoin train, I would say back in like mid 2016, 2017. This was way before when Bitcoin was really mainstream with anything. And once I found out what Bitcoin was, it was kind of like that moment where I was like, this is like finding out YouTube before YouTube was really big. And that, and like when you find opportunities like that, and when you hear stuff that's not being talked about, doesn't mean that it's a, that it's necessarily a scam or if it's a, or it's a bad idea. It could mean that you're just really early to something and it just kind of depends how you want to go from it from there. I stuck with Bitcoin and blockchain technology and I stuck with researching more and I kind of understood the product and and kind of saw the future of it. And then fast forward today, unfortunately un- unfortunately at that time I I was still like a younger kid, so I didn't have much to throw into the market. But fast forward to today, I was early in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general, and now everything's just blowing up. So your your talk about getting ahead of things and being prepared and being ahead so that when the momentum comes in, it will scoop you up. It's good to keep an open mind and just learn more about things that's kind of one thing well, well let's follow your bitcoin story because i can give you a a, a, a sort of a chapter on that for the from from my experience with it as well i mean when you're a technologist um you come in contact with a lot of interesting people and you learn a lot of interesting things and in the 90s i learned cryptography because it's part of what oh, wow. we do and um i was not one of the cypher punks should we say that predisposed crypto but i was somebody who was lurking in that world and in the 2000s um i had a small software company operating out of my house in arizona i wrote some software which was actually getting some track some traction and uh, i had to employ people to work for me to work on it and they were in very unusual technological areas that I could not find local talent. And I found a guy who worked for me for many years who lived in Bangladesh. Now, if you go back in time to the early 2000s, the biggest event probably in most people's minds back then was 9-11. And the thing about 9-11 was that after 9-11 happened, there was a mentality for a long time that was kind of, um, we don't trust Muslims. Is the worst place, worst way to put it, but that's what it was. Um, you know, history never. If you look back on history, honestly, it doesn't look as kind as it should. But that was kind of the world. And this developer who worked for me was a Muslim living in Bangladesh. It was a country that did not have a reciprocal banking agreement with the United States. I couldn't pay him with PayPal. There was nothing like that. Um, when he did work for me, I had to run down to Western Union with cash and buy Western Union money grams and send it to him. And he lost nearly 27% of all the money I paid to him that went to 
yeah, went to the banksters. So this was this was all going on, but it was just became normal for me. I just became a habit every week. I would do this for to keep him going. Um, in two thousand and eight, when the when the subprime mortgage crisis happened and everyone was losing homes and everything, um, I had a lot of real, rental real estate at that time. And I had bought these properties, you know, with the proceeds of the work that I had done. Little by little, I'd just been buying up real estate. But it just so happened that I was one of those idiots that bought a multifamily apartment uh, complex in 2007, right before the crash. And I used uh, mortgage financing. So I had borrowed at, I think it was like 80% LTV. Uh, on a property that then dropped to 40% of its value. I was Ooh. so upside down. It was it almost wiped me out. I got a I got around it because I knew uh, how to, to make money quickly. I knew how to service the debt. I knew how to make it work. But all through this time, my view of, of bankers and banks was really horrible. I mean, I, I blame them for everything. And to this day, I kind of do. So the reason why these stories are aligning is that around about 2009, um, a guy who I had met uh, maybe 10 years prior, but not kind of, you know, somebody, somebody you meet at a party and then you don't, you know, you don't really know very well or whatever. But uh, I met Julian Assange back in uh, Australia and, and I had, kept in contact, not not directly with him, but I had been monitoring what he was doing and he kind of went off the radar. And then about mid-2000s, he pops up with this WikiLeaks thing. And and I sort of thought, well, that's really interesting. And then I looked at the, at the technology and the security and the cryptography and all the things that were going on there. And I thought, this is a really interesting way that this is being used. There's a use case here for privacy. There's a use case here for cryptography. I get it. Um, later on, as we were going past this you know, global financial crisis and I've got my guy in Bangladesh working for me and I'm monitoring what's going on in WikiLeaks, he starts saying, everyone's shutting me down because he had published these, um, I think, Iraqi war documents and the film footage of a bunch of journalists getting shot up and the whole thing, the whole thing. He published it all. Everybody blacklisted him, every bank, PayPal, Everybody, Western Union, nobody would touch the guy. He had a bunch of servers running in a underground server facility in Sweden, I think it was at the time, and he needed to keep them running, keep the power going. And I kind of looked at what he was doing and I thought – I. At the time, I kind of felt like, yeah, I get we need to know this stuff, right? There was a need for it. So what I did was I said, I'll, I'll send you some money to help you pay for the service. Well, I couldn't. I couldn't send it by wire. I couldn't send it by PayPal. I'm thinking he's just like my guy in Bangladesh. <laughs> I can't send it to him either. So he comes up with this thing. I remember it being published and he says, this is like 2009, 2010. And he goes, um, well, there's, there's this thing called Bitcoin. I'm, oh, like, wow. I'm like, what? what is this thing called Bitcoin, Julian? So, uh, you know, he comes up and he says, well, you can send me this thing through Bitcoin, but if you want to get Bitcoin, you have to go and put your, you have to send money to an exchange that will give you the keys so you can do it. And I thought, okay, well, how do I do this? So the, the only exchange at the time that was noteworthy was one in Japan called MT Gox. 
So I, oh God. right. So I sent MT Gox a bunch of money. And then in the process, I'm thinking, my guy in Bangladesh needs to get paid. This could work for him too. So we worked out that he wanted to accept Bitcoin too. So I said, all right, how much is Bitcoin? This was in 2011. I eventually made the choice to use it. It was $7 each. That's insane. So I said, okay, get me a thousand of them. Oh my God. Right. So I get a crap ton of Bitcoin because look, it was going to cost me $75 to wire money to Japan to buy the stuff. And I thought I'll just leave it there like a big wallet and I'll just pay him every week. And I'll send some money to Julian. You know, it's like like everybody can get. Back in those days, you'd meet somebody at a party and they'd say, let me show you what Bitcoin is. I'll give you a Bitcoin. Okay, yeah, you can imagine what that's like today, right? There's oh 60 grand God. or whatever. So, Giving um, away cars. Yeah, nowadays. really. <laughs> but that's how it was back then. Um, and everyone thought, oh, it's nerd money, right? Like it's not real, so we don't really care about it. But that was just how it was being done. Um, so... <laughs> the crazy thing is, this is funny. So Empty Gox has got my Bitcoin over there and I'm paying people from it. And it's not worth that much. But all of a sudden it goes from like $7 to $11 to $30. And I'm going, holy cow, I just tripled my money. How did this happen? You know? And then I started, I started studying it. I got into the technology of it. But they also started studying the economics of it. And I started realizing the power of being able to take away a counterparty and do a true peer-to-peer transaction, which is the reason why I couldn't pay my guy in Bangladesh or I couldn't pay Julian Assange, right? So <laughs> so anyway, my guy in Bangladesh tells me, I, I love this Bitcoin, but I need to eat and I can't convert it to my local currency. But um, do, you, do you know a way? Well, I was watching... Um, Max Kaiser, I think it was back in those days, because he was he had this TV show called The Kaiser Report, and he, he was like going railing against the banks, hated the banks, and I'm like, you go, my Max, I hate them too. Look what <laughs> they did, you know, with the property or whatever. So um, he he has this guy called Simon Dixon, who's still a bit of a a noteworthy character in the Bitcoin community. Um, who came on and was talking about an exchange in Hong Kong that had started up called ANX. And ANX did this marvelous thing where they would give you a debit card, like a Visa or MasterCard debit card that was tied to your Bitcoin account. And I thought, aha, my guy in Bangladesh tells me he's got like a 7-Eleven or something around the corner that's got an ATM machine in it. Let's do a test. Let's get one of these cards. I'll send it to him and then we'll see whether or not he can withdraw money out of his, out of his account from this Bitcoin. And the thing worked. And we're like, hallelujah, we've found the answer here. So he got this and I moved everything out of Mt. Gox to ANX and a week later Mt. Gox got hacked and everything was lost. You escaped it <laughs> just in time. That's that is some good. That is good timing right there. Yeah, really. Uh, so, so fast forward, like now we're in 2011, 2012, and I'm like Mr. Bitcoin, right? I'm going around the around a place. I, I I go to CES and I'm talking to people about it, and I'm you know, and everyone's like, Miles, shut up about this Bitcoin, would you? Oh we're my sick, god, you know. that was that was, <laughs> that was everyone to me. I was like. Bitcoin's the next week thing. Yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to overtake the dollar. It's going to become the new currency. Everyone's just laughing at me. And I'm like, okay. 
Yeah, exactly. Your loss. Exactly. Your loss. Yeah, it's like I I had come to my realization about the power of this thing because I had been using it like as a as a medium of exchange, right? I and I saw it had store of value and I saw it had immutable ledger qualities and all the things that you need in a currency. So I started to mine it. I started investing in mining in Iceland. I started doing all these nutso things with Bitcoin. And everybody's like, that's nerd money, Miles. You know, that's not real. It's going to go to zero. It'll die next year. What are you doing? You're wasting your time. And I'm like, just wait, just wait, you know. And years go by, years go by, years go by. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, God, tell me about Bitcoin, Miles. <laughs> exactly. That's everyone now. It's everyone. So I have been through the whole Bitcoin world from the dawn of the white paper um, all the way through almost every single chapter. And then at some point, I think probably around 2016, about the time you probably got in, I also started diverging into other altcoins. I bought Ethereum when it was $6 each. Um, because I thought this might be good because I can program on it. You know, I can use the characteristics of the blockchain for application development. I thought that was good. Um, I bought I bought some things that didn't work out very well. I bought Ripple. That was a waste. Um, and <laughs> it's a good run. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't – considering what I got out of it at the end, I didn't really – I wasn't really yeah. complaining. But I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be. I, I thought we're – and maybe in 2019 when the Lightning Network started to come online and, and we started to see that as a as a, me, a payment rail that it could get past the fact that, um, you know, it was costing $50 to do a Bitcoin transaction. So all these side chains were starting to come up and I was studying that. And, get, you know, it's like there's a lot of advantages in using this as a true currency for day-to-day -day, um, purchases. But... It's also it, it it's such um, it's such an undefined time right now because we don't have any regulations which which are really established that people know what their their risks are they don't know what the rules of the game are yet um, we've got congressional hearings it seems like every month there's some sort of congressional hearing about bitcoin you've got certain politicians who don't know anything because they're at least in their 60s or 70s and they they don't have this connection with emerging technologies and the the idea yeah. of the, the surfer mentality they don't they're politicians they're, they're old politicians Nothing against them, but they don't know this stuff. But they are willing to go public and just rail on what they don't know because it's kind of like, you know, burn the witch. And they don't really know what they're dealing with. And the problem is that until that generation gets usurped with a new generation of more embracing, smart, willing, and open-minded leaders, we run the risk that they could do what China's done or what India's done and just shut the whole thing down. Um, and that's kind of a risk that we have to embrace and we have to accept. But what I have learned, and this is coming from the contrarian side of things, is that if I just play like the herd, if I just say, well, everybody's looking at this going, you know, henny penny, the sky is falling, we're all going to get out of it, that's when I go in. Um, a side 
story to this whole timing thing I've mentioned was that in 2011, 2012, um, when everybody was being foreclosed, we're living in, we live in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. So we're in the heart of foreclosure city back then. Um, everybody was losing their houses and there were foreclosures. You, you, you'd fall over them walking down the street. Um, I went through towns that were just like boarded up buildings and it was really sad. And everybody was like, I'll never buy real estate ever again. And I'm, I'm going, uh, you have no idea about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or physiological needs or anything, do you? You don't have any idea that you need shelter, particularly in the desert. Um, but if that's what you want to do, you do you. And meanwhile, I'll buy that property for 10 cents on the dollar and I'll buy that property for 10 cents. And I did. I bought streets of real estate at 10 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Well, it wasn't the dip. This was buying the crash. I was just saying, yeah, buying the crash. Yeah. But the thing is today, um, we just uh, refinanced uh, one of our buildings, which was like a fourplex that we bought back in those days. And I paid 75K for it. And the bank... Uh, three weeks ago, valued it at 800 in 10 years. But that's nothing compared to what the Bitcoin price rise has been. But, but still, what I'm trying to say is that it's the surfer, right? You don't make you and, – and here's the other thing, and, and this is going to sound – every if, if you've got anybody who's like a parent listening to your show, they're going to hate me telling you this, but I'll tell you the truth. I never made money being a great software developer and I did it for 40 something years. I never made money. What I made was I had a salary that might come in if I was working for somebody or I've contracting and I made some money. That money went went because the cost for me to operate to do that job was almost equal to what I was making. And the little bit left, that little profit that you get that's left is eaten up by taxes or going out to with you know to a restaurant with your buddies or down to the bar or whatever. It goes, right? It's like closet space. You think you've got a lot of it and then one day it's all filled up and you're like, how did that happen? Well, it's like money. You think you got some, but it just disappears. That's just how money is. You don't make money working hard. You make money buying something when it's cheap and selling it when it's not. That's how you make money, right? It took me 40 damn years to work that crap out. And I see people in their 20s now who are far more astute than I ever was who get it, like you, buying Bitcoin, right? That will make you wealthy. If you're willing and and you've got uh, confidence and courage and uh, the tenacity to stick with why you bought it and don't sell it because you get either scared or you have some fear factor that's creeping in that says, oh, I better sell it because it's getting expensive. No, you need to just put it aside, get it out of your mind, let time take its course on it, and then you will see it go up. Because the one thing you can guarantee with something like a scarce resource like Bitcoin is that the price will have to go up because by design it's built that way. Whereas in the case of fiat dollars, it's designed to go it to zero. It's designed, <laughs> it's designed with entropy built into its, its entire model. But Bitcoin is not. 
and you can counter anything going on in the economy. So when you, you know, you're talking to your mate at work or whatever, and they're going, Oh God, I went to the grocery store and everything's like 20 cents, 20% more, or I went to go get gas and now I'm paying a dollar extra a gallon. Yeah, you are. Cause your dollar's worth squat because they just, they keep, they keep d- diluting it. Because we keep spending it on these pet projects that these politicians want and we dilute its value. But Bitcoin, you can't do that to it. So every time that dollar goes through its natural process on its road to entropy, your Bitcoin keeps going up. Have faith and stay the course. Exactly, exactly. And there's one closing thing that I just want to mention before we head off to the questions. but. In this modern day of age, there's so many other different ways to make money now with crypto. There's so many like there's so many protocols now that that you can do literally nothing and just earn that coin by just staking it. There's so many ways that you can just learn about technology and find out how to make money from it. It's it's honestly like anyone can do it. You just have to put in the time to learn to learn about something and just understand it. And then once you do that, you'll get the full mindset of you, that you believe in this and that you see it in the future. But it's just crazy that there's like compared to like back in the day, like there's so many ways that young people can get into the game and get ahead of life. But just going to close on, close on that one. Um, one, one new segment that I did want to introduce to the shoulders now are questions from the viewers and listeners and kind of the audience. Um, this week I took to my Instagram, my personal Instagram and kind of put out a little questionnaire of like, uh, a description of my guest and what they would want to ask them if they were talking to them. So miles, the first question that I got was what or do you have a morning routine to amp up your productivity? So it sounds like you have a lot going on with managing properties back in the day, having your own business. Did you have some type of like morning rituals or routines that you would do to get you ready for the Oh, other than copious quantities of coffee. (laughs) Um, Well, here's one thing that's weird is that mornings are different for me because although one would say, well, you know, the sun comes up, it's morning and we get up and we wake from sleep and we go through those things, which I'm no different than anybody else. We all do that. Um, When I usually sit down with a cup of coffee, groggy from sleep, I've already been um i have to catch up on what happened in europe of things that i'm involved in there or i have to catch up with what was going on in australia because i still have action activities going on there um and so i'm multi-timed zoned and so i don't ever that is a, is a good and bad with that the good is um, there's always something going on any time of the day or night. The bad is there's always something going on any time of the day or night. You know, you've got to you've got to discipline yourself to stop. Uh, but but my morning rituals is to catch up mainly with what's been going on in the European market and uh, how that might be affecting me and what opportunities are presenting themselves over there. 
Um, and then uh, I have, yeah, I have property in multiple countries so that I'm dealing with different um, time zones. So often things like I, I'll have, I, I, this morning I had emails from an attorney in uh, Mexico City. We're dealing with a big property development down there right now. Um, asking me questions and getting set up. I jump on a plane tomorrow to go down there. Uh, so yeah, I'm pretty active and mornings mornings don't have the same significance because when you're multi-time dimensional, they, you're just playing catch up in some part of the world and you're way ahead of it in, in other parts. If you have something that kind of happens every single day that is kind of affecting you on what you do, whether that be investing or currency or anything like that i feel like that can definitely give you the spark of the day because um you just have that eagerness to like find out okay did something happen yesterday that could affect me today or potentially uh affect my profits or my investments so that's that is uh that is really good and um the last question that we're gonna go with is um so you did say that you were like a multi-millionaire and that you've been a millionaire and then you lost and then you got to a millionaire again. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do? Like, well, I feel like you've kind of already said this in the in the chat already, but like when you make so much money, what do you do with it? Um, I put it aside. <laughs> I, I, I'm not somebody who was raised in poverty where I, you know, I have to hoard things. I'm not like that, but I do realize the, the value of having liquidity at a time when an opportunity presents itself. And I think that preparation is the key. Um, something my father taught me when I was a kid, which I really do think is true is that, um, success is when preparedness meets opportunity. And I can't determine the opportunities because that's kind of the the fate of the future. I don't know what will present itself to me. I can only hope that I'm able to see it. Um, but as far as preparedness goes, it comes down to what you do. So if you were, uh, let's say you're an Olympic athlete, well, preparedness is going to come from training and continuous training. And or if a sporting uh, person would participate in sport and then the opportunity may come around where uh, uh, somebody wants to poach you for the NFL or some you know mega thing, well, it came down to your preparedness to be available at that time. Are you fit? Are you healthy? And are you openly advertising yourself as wanting to be picked and then just keep doing that. The opportunity should come to you eventually. It's the build it and they will come mentality. So I think that that's really important is preparation. Um, And that's where I think from a financial sense, I'd mentioned before that I never really made my money being a a, a programmer or working in, in a role. I made my money investing. The only thing you can do in preparation for investments is to have liquid capital available so that you can participate. And then second to that is to understand what you're buying. I would never suggest that you buy anything you don't understand. I was Right. I was lucky in the world of being a technologist that I could understand cryptography and Bitcoin and all of that. So that benefited me. But I, it literally, I'd been working in that industry for 30 years prior before an opportunity like that presented itself. When the internet came about, 
I was one of the idiots that didn't get it. I could have been, you know, I could have been Google or Facebook, but I didn't get it. I didn't understand its significance. And that was my fault. And I think a lot of it was just pride and thinking that I knew what was going on in the world. And, and that was just naivety at its best. And it cost me probably billions of dollars, but I wasn't going to screw it up the second time round. And I, I also realized that um, you can be as prepared with money and have a lot of capital uh, somewhere, you know, ready to pounce on something, but that shouldn't be burning a hole in your pocket. You have to be able to put it aside. So you have to find places to put it that will pay you to own them. And that's a big part of what I do. Um, other countries, for example, will pay you 6 to 8% on a savings account whereas you can't get that in the US. But no one knows that because they don't go. I was going to say, that must be very nice. Oh, my God. Oh, I can get 6% in a banking account in Mexico right now without any major issue. Or I can get probably 8 to 10% in Georgia, um, not the state, the country. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it's not hard to get money in those areas because those countries don't um, rely on the US Federal Reserve zero interest-based monetary uh, distribution. They don't take on debt. So they, they pay you so that they have money to lend out to somebody at 15% so you get paid accordingly. But no one knows that. I mean, they don't because they don't get off their butt and go there. <laughs> um, that's that's what this is about. It's a life is a participation sport, and you can't do it as you you rightly said this before. You can't do the looking at your smartphone all day, or watching somebody else's experiences, you know, on YouTube or whatever. It that's not how it works. You have to get out there. And you have to do it, and then you'll walk into the bank and go, "Holy cow! I didn't realize I paid this. Here, give me you know, <laughs> give me interest." And that and that's a great way of doing things. Yeah, I think I think that was an awesome answer to the, to that question, Miles. Um, I thank you so much for coming on to the show. You've you've had a wild ride in your life, and I am extremely grateful that you came on to my show. Not a problem. Thank you for having me.